welcome once more to After School Science Club. I'm Mick. And I'm Liv. And today we're going to talk about all things lies and deception. To explore the science of lies, lying, and how you can tell when someone is telling a lie, we've invited a special guest onto the show, Carl Dando, a professor of forensic psychology and an expert in lies. We've got a lot to talk about today, so without further ado, let's see what lies in wait for us today with Carl. Carl Dando, welcome to After School Science Club. Before we get into um, our conversation, do you want to just introduce yourself, tell us a bit about about who you are, what you do? Yeah, thank you very much, Um, and it's lovely to be here. I am a professor of forensic psychology and I currently work at the University of Westminster in London. Um, I haven't always been an academic though. I used to in my previous life, my previous career, um, serve, well I did serve as a police officer in central London for approaching 10 years. So um, I use some of the experiences that I um, collected um, as a police officer and that helps me um, and informs me with my teaching and my research. That sounds great. So um, can you tell us a little bit about polygraphs? They're clearly known as lie detectors. So how true is that really? What do they actually do? Yeah, um, that's a very good question. Um, What do they actually do? So uh, a polygraph is I would say the professional name for a process that involves a machine, which um, I'll be able to explain to you as we go through this podcast. But a polygraph is a psychosocial, I suppose, test that is used worldwide by many, many countries and um, increasingly so in the United Kingdom. And it's a way of um, trying to understand whether someone is telling you the truth or not. And you'll often hear that referred to as veracity. So veracity just being a posh word for the truth or a lie. Um, And what the polygraph does is it measures our physiological responses to, um, for the purposes of the polygraph, certain questions. Um, And our physiological responses that the polygraph is particularly interested in are, for example, our breathing rate, our heartbeat rate, so how quick or how slow it goes, um, how sweaty our hands get, so um, uh, conductivity, skin conductivity, and also our blood pressure. And what the um, polygraph does is it measures those processes throughout the polygraph process, which um, can last anything from about 30 minutes up to three hours. Um, Should we be calling it a lie detector test? No, we should not, (laughs) because the polygraph does not detect lies. Um, But of course, it's commonly called a lie detector because it's used in contexts where people are interested in understanding as best they can, whether the person that that is replying to the questions or having a conversation with you is is being veridical, so is telling the truth or not. So I suppose a lie detector test is sort of like a slang terminology uh, for this process. You said we shouldn't be using it as quote, quote, whether it would be a lie detector or not. But how are they how are they used then? How are they technically supposed to tell whether someone is lying? Like, is there actually science that that it's grounded in? Yeah, yeah, there, there is a lot of science that the polygraph or the polygraph procedure 
is grounded in, um, whether that science is relevant to being useful for understanding where someone is telling the truth or not um, is another matter. But nonetheless, we know that human beings react physiologically and often that that physiological reaction you know you I'm sure you felt it yourself where your heartbeat goes a bit quicker or you get a bit hotter or a bit sweaty or you get when you feel a bit stressed or a bit upset or a bit nervous um, the argument is that these physiological responses happen automatically and that we as individuals have very little control over them or not as much control as we would like um, so that's the first element, and but that maps directly onto theoretical understanding of deception, so verbal deception. So being deceptive verbally is a pro-social act because I'm largely, I mean, we can deceive ourselves, but if we put that aside, um, largely to be deceptive there has to be what we refer to as a receiver so the person that's listening to your deceptive account and that is a social act and the uh, argument is that social act of being deceptive verbally deceptive is an emotional act that it can trigger in us fear it can trigger delight because we're really pleased that we think we're getting away with it we can be fearful if we think that we're going to be caught lying and that those emotional responses will have an impact on the physiological um, outputs that the polygraph um, aims to measure. So how accurate are those physiological responses in determining whether or not someone's actually lying? Well there is, I'm sure you've heard it and your listeners will have heard it as well, there is no Pinocchio's nose and uh, so there are no physical behaviours that are indicative of lies, that are consistently indicative of uh, lies across the entire population. There are no verbal behaviours that are indicative of lies. And we also know that there are no one physiological behaviours. I say behaviours, but I mean physiological sort of impacts on um on in, on our heart rate, on our breathing rate, and so on and so forth. So, uh, and this is one of the really, really big challenges that we know that everybody, because we know that everybody is deceptive um, in their lives, and that could be on a fairly regular basis, and that could be for lots and lots of different reasons. You know, it might be because we don't want to upset someone, or it may be because we do want to get away with a criminal um, offence. But um, we know that people who are being deceptive behave very, very differently. They behave different mentally, they behave differently physically, and as a result, their physiological arousal, so the indicators that the polygraph is interested in, are um, variable across the population. But of course, um, I'm sure we'll get onto this, but the polygraph procedure is designed to try and understand differences. So, for example, they do try to gain a base rate indicator of your physiological responses before then collecting data to try and, um, as polygraph uh, professionals will say, try and make or infer a diagnosis. So there is an element of testing to it, which does try to iron out some of those challenges, certainly. I just want to jump back a second to something that you said 
about uh, feeling guilt when we're lying and having certain physiological responses. How does that differ or how might that differ in people, for example, with like psychopathy or sociopathy? How would that, you know, with the inability or the reduced ability to experience those feelings, how would that work then with a lie detector or with a polygraph? Um, yeah, I think that's a, a really good question. And I have to say that the answer to that is, as far as I'm aware, we don't know. Because um, as a scientist, what I'm interested in when I look at the polygraph and the theory underpinning it, but also the empirical evidence, so the scientific evidence that allows me to make some sort of decision about whether I think it's a useful technique or not, um, First of all, the empirical evidence, so the research that's conducted in laboratories and in the field, for example, is, is quite limited. Um, and that which is available will always argue that it's very difficult to replicate real deception in terms of the real implications um, in a laboratory. So we, we sort of have to work with what we have. And what we have um, doesn't, as far as I'm aware, ever the impact of, as you say, severe personality disorders or indeed neurodiversity, because we know that neurodiversity can have quite a big impact on the way in which we behave socially and also the way in which we um, might react in a physiological manner. So um, I think it's a really good question. We know, don't we, that for example, people that have been diagnosed as psychopathic don't have an emotional response in the way that one might expect um, to have in the general population. Um, although that we know the general population has an emotional response on a continuum, we um, our understanding is that uh, psychopathic individuals um, lack empathy, lack uh, um, that ability to um, understand the impact of their behaviour. Um, so um, I think that's what an empirical question and one which, as far as I'm aware, isn't answered. But um, I could sort of make a bit of a guesstimate, <laughs> which isn't very good science. So. It's OK. I mean, science is all about coming up with the idea and then testing it, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, most hypothetical or theoretical understanding which sit, which triggers scientific empirical inquiry does come from, in psychology anyway, observations of behaviour, um, observations of phenomena, which makes us think, oh, I wonder why that's happened or what might be causing that or how can I go about trying to better understand that? So I think, yeah, uh, I think um, our clinical, and of course, I'm not a clinical expert, but our clinical understanding of the impact of uh, psychopathy and um, neurodiversity as well, our understanding, I think, is quite robust. And that would allow us to suggest that probably the polygraph wouldn't be perhaps as effective, if we want to use that term effective, but that's for discussion um, in, in that population. But also, if we think ethically as well, would it be ethical to use this type of um, instrument on an individual that has a, some sort of clinical diagnosis of um, what is often regarded and widely regarded as um, an illness? So that's another question to be had. So with all this question about the consistency and reliability of polygraphs, 
are those results admissible as evidence in a legal setting? And I guess, why or why not? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. Um, uh, and in many, many countries in the world, the polygraph or evidence elicited as a result of a polygraph test. So this in, inferring of veracity is admissible as as evidence, as part of uh, a case in court. And of course, um, I suspect it will be obvious to many of your listeners that um, the primary country that we link the polygraph to, because it's used very widely, is the United States of America. In particular, the FBI um, use the polygraph, and they but they tend to, and other professionals, tend to use the polygraph as part of the investigation process. So individuals that use the polygraph will argue that it's useful as part of an investigation and that we don't rely on the polygraph on its own. Um, Russia uses the polygraph significantly and um, not only does it use it in um, my understanding in criminal investigations, but it uses it as part of HR recruitment processes and it uses it widely. We also know that my colleagues in the United States who are outside of an investigative domain will use it as part of recruitment as well. And uh, many countries, so um, I'm just trying to remember some of the countries that do use polygraph evidence outside of the US um, that we might be more familiar with, Finland, Norway, oh, Japan is very, very big on using the polygraph and likewise China. And uh, they use it very widely and not always just as part of investigation of crime. So it's really, really widely used. And I think, if I remember rightly, approaching half of the US states will accept polygraph um, evidence in court as part of an, a criminal prosecution and probably a civil prosecution as well. So it's widely used. Um, you asked me a second part to that question, Nick. Mick, sorry, I can't remember what it was. Oh, it's just, why would it be used or not used? Okay, yeah, why is it used? Well, the reason I think it's used, first of all, it's cultural. So in the United Kingdom, culturally, we don't have a mindset where we embrace the polygraph as part of our everyday investigation or recruitment processes. So that's sort of cultural. But secondly, um, we don't countries that do use it, and and why why wouldn't they? One might argue is because we are really really rubbish at detecting deception, and uh, human beings perform largely at about chance. So you might as well toss a coin if you're trying to understand when someone is being deceptive or not. If it's your family member who you know very very well, the chances are you will do much better because you understand what their baseline behaviour is like when they're not being deceptive. But if it's someone you've met for the first time as part of an investigation or you're trying to do a risk assessment, you don't know them, you don't know how they behave normally and you don't have a structured questioning approach, then our chances of picking up when they're being deceptive are, you know, as I say, about chance. So therefore, the polygraph sort of came into being at around the turn of this century. It was developed for medical purposes. But an uh, American police officer who was also a psychologist uh, thought um, to himself, 
obviously it wasn't quite this straightforward, but thought he could probably develop that to pick up on the physiological responses um, in human beings when they were being deceptive. And that's sort of how it started. And because our understanding of verbal deception and picking up on when people are being deceptive is the literature is huge, but our understanding, I don't think, has advanced very well, other than we know what we don't know. That's how that's where we are as scientists. Um, we know that we don't know how to pick up on when someone's being deceptive. So I know you said that uh, you might be able to better tell if someone's being deceptive if they're a family member or someone you know well. I also know that polygraphs are often used with a set of sort of uh, control questions to establish a baseline. So do those not work very well or are we talking in a more general sense? So there are two sort of approaches to the polygraph, which is a process. And there are largely, um, I'm generalising here, but there's what's referred to as a guilty knowledge test or a concealed information test. And I think you are referring to the concealed information test. And um, this is whereby people that are um, attached to the polygraph, which is quite an invasive machine. I don't know if your listeners will have ever seen one before, but I think uh, just to look on a normal search engine uh, will show you what it looks like. The argument is if I'm strapped up to that machine, and potentially in a position whereby concerned with proving my innocence or I'm concerned with being believed, that would the control questions that are used in the concealed information test be relevant and useful because my physiological arousal may be, or it may not be, but may be, um, heightened just simply because of the environment. So um, we use a couple, there are, not we, but psychologists and polygraphers, which of course, who of course have to take professional training and testing in order to be able to administer a polygraph. They have two types of questions and uh, they're called the relevant questions and the comparison questions. And I think you're referring to the comparison questions whereby individuals are asked a few questions um, and their responses to those questions which aren't associated with the incident that the individual um, is being tested about their responses to those questions so their blood pressure their um, you know how sticky their hands get um, how their breathing changes and their heart rate changes are measured and that's used as the baseline so um, and then what happens then is they're asked then what we call the relevant questions, and these are questions associated with the actual crime event. And the argument is that we would see a change in the physiological response, so they would increase, so because we would be more worried, more upset, more concerned, um, it would trigger this emotional response in us when we try to lie about relevant questions, which are questions associated with the crime. So um, that's the thinking. And I think, you know, having this baseline in terms of the comparison questions or the baseline questions, however you want to use them, I think it is a good built in approach to try and reduce the chances that we're going to get a false positive because we've got something to compare it with. Um, so I think that's quite 
good. And certainly the controlled or the comparison question test, you'll hear it called two things, um, is the most widely used polygraph test um, worldwide because there's this sort of built-in um, sort of baseline measure. In movies, with the baseline questions, in movies and shows, characters tend to cheat polygraphs by creating themselves, usually like slight pain during those baseline questions. How does that work to cheat the test? So if we think back what the polygraph, just recap what the polygraph does, they're trying to pick up on differences in physiological and emotional responses to certain types of questions. And of course, the way in which um, people try to cheat, for want of a better word, or manage or come over as being innocent when they're guilty is to try and uh, introduce countermeasures. Now, there are two groups of countermeasures. One of them is about, um, I suppose you could describe, just going through the whole of the polygraph process in a very relaxed, very zoned out, very chilled manner, which means that your physiological responses stay constant. And then the other way to uh, that people try and cheat it, um, and we talk about or or counterbalance, not cheat. Counterbalance is a is a better word. Um, is to do an immediate response by doing things such as when they're doing uh, the baseline questions, which of course um, one might argue people that have done a polygraph before might understand, or those people that have gone through the process of making inquiries about a polygraph, what it does, how it works. There's lots out there on the internet. Um, do what they call it, uh, introduce an immediate behaviour. So they will do something like bite their tongue or they'll do something like pinch themselves really hard and they've got to sort of like, you know, draw blood, so on and so forth, um, when the control questions are introduced so that they get a heightened rise of the control questions, the thinking being that if they're then asked a, a particular, a relevant question to the crime that might trigger an emotional response which may lead to a psychosocial or physiological response that might indicate guilt, that in actual fact that you get this level playing field from one control question to the relevant question, if that makes sense. But of course, um, I suppose you, you have to have understand the polygraph, how it works. You have to be aware of in the polygraph process what the control questions are and sometimes the control questions aren't always that obvious so there can be questions such as you know have you ever stolen anything um which in and of itself might trigger some sort of a response because we're worried about how we should reply to that and actually those types of questions are often what we refer to as the control questions or the baseline questions so individuals have got to recognise that's what it is and introduce their immediate countermeasure or counterbalance response there and then. So um, and my understanding is that um, there's not a great deal of research on um, countermeasures and the suggestion is that they can be effective, but they're not always effective. But there's a, quite a big um, uh, business teaching individuals countermeasures. So what you're saying is that this podcast could either hamper criminal investigations or potentially 
undercut our profits. <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right. And um, I think it, it. I think it's fair to say that nothing we're talking about here is not available. So none of it is sort of secret, for the want of a better word, or you know, confidential. Everything about a polygraph is available on the internet, and um, some of it is high quality. You know, if you can access, and, and generally speaking, individuals don't tend to access. Um, empirical research articles that I do to try and get a, a scientific view on it um, and that means there is also a lot of rubbish out there so you know we know that some of the big video hosting platforms whom should remain nameless will um, ha host hundreds thousands and thousands of um, short clips on how to beat polygraph how to um, get away with lying, how people behave when they're lying. You know, and they're some of the most popular sort of downloads there are. Um, so I, I think, um, I suppose the good thing about the polygraph, I suppose, literature, um, as well as the popular psychology story about the polygraph, um, is sort of actually generally consistent. Uh, it tells a fairly consistent story about what the polygraph is, what it measures, how it works, and um, what the types of tests are. And then you've only got to sign up to be um, a professional or even a student, and you can access all this stuff very, very quickly. I was thinking when you were talking, I was like, are we are we just like handing out advice to people on how to beat these tests? But if it's available everywhere, then it doesn't really matter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so then... Can we truly tell whether or not someone is lying with the polygraph or otherwise? And how, if so? Yeah, I, I, you can't. You can't truly tell when someone is lying. Um, uh, the, the best way, um, but I, you know, and I, I say this with a caveat that I'm, I'm English, I'm British. I come from an investigative context that does not use um, and has, doesn't countenance and doesn't really get <laughs> um, the polygraph because it's not part of our culture. Um, the way in which I and my colleagues that I work with, and I work with um, a lot of colleagues from around the world, um, the way in which we go about trying to understand when someone is being deceptive is we have what we call a conversation with a purpose. And that purpose is to try and gather or maximise the chances that we will be able to gather as many cues to veracity as possible. And in order to do that, you need to structure the conversation with the purpose in such a way as to make it as difficult as possible for a deceptive individual to maintain their deceptive account and as straightforward as possible for a truthful individual to just tell you what they know. So if we think about being deceptive, um, if we take the emotion out of it, if we think about what it is to try and formulate a lie in a conversation, to answer questions that I don't know what sort of questions are going to be asked, to keep my story sensible, to maintain my story over an extended period of time, to hold back the truth because human beings naturally want to tell the truth in order and not have slips of the tongue. You'll have all heard of spoonerism, slips of the tongue, to get away with that. And also in this conversation, so this formal conversation with a purpose, which we call an interview, but um, my American colleagues call an interrogation, um, 
I also, as an interviewee, and I want to come over as being truthful, I don't actually know what information you've got about me. You know, I don't know if you've got any CCTV information. I don't know if you've been into my bank account. I don't know if you've spoken to my friends and family. So maintaining an effective lie is extremely difficult cognitively. And so, therefore, there are lots of ways in which we can interview someone or have a conversation with a purpose that maximises the chances that we will be able to gather evidence and information and cues that will allow us to infer the veracity of their account. And, of course, in this country, we're not a confession culture. So confessions are largely irrelevant to us. They're useful if they come. But a confession on its own is not um, will not trigger a criminal prosecution. So we need to collect evidence and information from an interview as well. And that's how we approach it. So how is the polygraph currently being used in the UK then? So um, and that's a really good question, because as I've previously mentioned, we in the UK don't have a culture whereby the polygraph is not accepted, that's a bit too harsh, but we don't really use it uh, for lots of reasons, rightly or wrongly. However, recently, and that's certainly within the past five years, um, we've started to use the polygraph and we've started to use it in three particular contexts. The most recent one is, um, or no, not the most recent one, the one that is the most developed is to use it with sex offenders that have been released on licence from prison. So these individuals have um, served, they've been convicted of a sex offence, a serious sex offence or sex offences, and they have served a prison sentence. But as we know, not everybody, people don't stay in prison forever. They do get released into the community on parole. And um, what we are, this government is currently doing is using the polygraph test to manage them while they are in the community to try and understand um, whether they are behaving in a manner that contradicts their parole or their license terms and conditions. So, um, and it's mandatory. And it was done, a first uh, trial was done, I think, four or five years ago. And that was run by a psychologist and uh, someone that I know at the University of Kent. And what she did was she had a group of of sex offenders that are out on license and they took the polygraph test and I think it was monthly and it was undertaken by a trained probation service professional and they were asked questions and I think they used the concealed information or the control question test so the one we've mainly discussed they asked questions about whether they have um, behaved in a way in contravention of their license and what they found was that the polygraph in the first instance was very successful at um, encouraging people to reveal what they refer to as clinically relevant revelations. So they revealed information that indicated they had behaved in contravention of their license arrangement. So it was really useful in that regard in so much that in the first instance, these individuals that are out on license were aware they were going to be attested and they obviously were either encouraged to reveal information or where those that didn't make clinically relevant revelations, they didn't reoffend. 
so that's a really good news story. So it may be a really good um, way of disincentivizing because they're scared of getting caught. And it also may be a really good way of, for probation service to be able to look at what these reoffenders are doing and try and manage that reoffending, try and put in an intervention in place. Because ultimately, we want people not to reoffend. However, the slight challenge was that as those participants, those uh, prisoners, took the polygraph test on months, their revelation of clinically relevant information decreased significantly. And we don't know, and the questions are asked, was that because they stopped reoffending? Was that because they'd learned countermeasures? Or was that because they just got so practiced that they didn't really care anymore? So that's one way. But I think nonetheless, I think it's if it's effective with just a few individuals, that's good. Um, we are now trialing using it for terrorist uh, offenders or people convicted of terrorism. Again, that have been released on license. Uh, that's gone, going through in a similar sort of a way and also with uh, in domestic violence. So these are three types of criminal behaviour that society is really, really, really concerned about. But we have quite high recidivism. So that's just a posh word for repeat offending, even when they've done a terror, uh, a uh, prison sentence. So it may well be that the polygraph proves to be a useful deterrent or maybe it does catch people lying or not being truthful, in which case they'll go back to prison. Um, the jury's out on that, but it seems to have been very well uh, received by the general public and the government is uh, very keen on using it. So, uh, yeah, and I think you can, listeners can get a lot of information about these projects from, you know, uh, the mainstream news media and also from government websites. How is our understanding of verbal deception and physiological responses changed over time? Psychologically speaking, I suppose we've really been looking at deception over and really quite empirically and scientifically over the last 40 years or so. And the literature is huge. I mean, prior to that, there was a, um, a general movement to trying to first look at or think about how people lie and what they do when they lie. And there were all these sort of not particularly scientifically well-controlled sort of, I suppose, commentaries about deception and what it is to be deceptive. And I think in the last 40 years, we've moved on. But in the last 20 years in particular, we've really started to fire ahead. So, you know, in some of the work that I do, for example, we get people to take part in events and then um, they're physically part of an event and then come and then they lie to us or they tell the truth. And we look at differences in physical and verbal behaviour. But generally speaking, there is no one cue, and I've said that before, and behavioural cues that accompany verbal behaviours can be quite useful. If you look at behaviour only, the chances are you will perform much worse than chance because behaviours are very individual. Um, if you listen to what someone's saying in terms of the content of what they say and you're listening to them when they've been involved in this conversation with a purpose that's been developed to try and make it as cognitively demanding, then you can often 
pick out on Tuesday's reception. And this is why many of our statesmen will only give you a statement. They're not very keen, often, to answer questions. And the reason they're not is, you know, I'm not suggesting that they're lying, but there are opportunities there for questioners to pick apart some of the things that they say in a way which might highlight um, inconsistencies. Yeah. So you will find that most professional speakers will want to, will not take questions. And I think when you do see them taking questions, um, over these past couple of years, there's plenty of incidents. When our leaders take questions, they obviously often don't perform as well in terms of providing a, a consistent account of, of things. So, um, but uh, essentially, it's a really, really, really difficult task. And even with the work that we've done in laboratories, and that inc also includes working out in the real world. So working in situations where people have to make a real time decision. So I've worked a lot in airports where we've had to make a risk assessment about the veracity of an account that a potential passenger is giving. Um, even when we have to make it in real time, um, when we uh, implement the best that we can, we can only get to around 70% accuracy. Um, it's really, really hard. So, um, yeah, I don't know what the take-home message of, to your listeners is with regard to that. <laughs> Probably just not to lie in the first place if you can help it. Well, absolutely. I mean, it's just life is a lot easier if we are just truthful. But, of course, what is really interesting and I'll just highlight this really for some of your listeners to think about, is in the current climate where we don't always engage with a person face-to-face, -face, in person, it's often remote. Sometimes we can't see that person. Sometimes we can only hear them. Sometimes we're only interacting with a person via text, so it might be via an email, and it also might be via a text message, SMS message or something similar. Our ability to pick up on deceptive cues as a, a um, in terms of the general population are, are much reduced because we're becoming more and more victims of, for example, remote um, online deception. And the literature and our scientific understanding in that um, area is is very, very small. Very small indeed. Um, I've been working on some uh, projects with the UK government about insider threat, for example, and trying to detect when insiders are involved in stealing or potentially working up to stealing information from organisations. Um, and we've been using text-based um, analyses to look at how they're um, language changes in their emails and their textual conversations with colleagues. And it's really, really interesting because we know that our internal thought processes do leak out into our language. And that can be often quite a really good indicator that something isn't quite right. And I think this might be useful for trying to detect or trying to understand the likelihood that a communication that's being sent to you which isn't verbal but is textual might be or might more likely be fraudulent but you know that's a whole new project 
Well, thank you so much for coming on this episode today to educate us so much about Lyme and about polygraph testing. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a really insightful conversation. That's lovely. Thank you very much for inviting me. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to After School Science Club, hosted by Liv Gaskell and Mick Schubert, with music by Sam Watts. I'm Liv, and you can find me on Instagram at sciencewithliv. And I'm Mick, and you can find me at mickschubert.com, as well as a variety of other places. You can also email us at scyclubpodcast at gmail.com. That's S-C-I club podcast at gmail.com. So get in touch if you have any burning questions or if you want to suggest a cool topic for us to discuss in a future episode. Thanks, and we'll see you next episode. Boom! We did it! <laughs>